0: to 17. It's always dangerous to be between a people and and a fellowship meal. Uh, As the smells uh, come among us, hopefully our attention uh, is given to the Word of God. This is our, our main entree, really, today. Colossians 3, verse 15. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts... to God the Father through him. Well, let's pray one a final time and ask God's help. Heavenly Father, indeed, we do have much to praise you for. Uh, we could sing uh, forever uh, of, of your great grace and kindness to us in Jesus Christ. But we do thank you, Lord, for this hour that we can come <clears throat> and open the word of God May, may you open our eyes, open our minds, open our hearts to believe and respond and understand and, and go away transformed. Might your spirit be working in us so that we may abound in praise and glory to your name. In Jesus' name, amen. Our text here in Colossians 3 comes in the context where Paul is... Teaching these believers of how they 're to conduct themselves in the household of God, that he notes that they 're a new creation, and so, as a new creation in Christ you, you you put off old behavior and old habits and you put on new behavior you you seek the things above, you set your mind on the things above and so our exhortations come uh, on the end of these household. Uh, exhortations, and interwoven between, uh, in these exhortations in verses 15 to 17 are these exhortations to thanksgiving. As we'll see, they're not the main uh, commands of these verses, but they're uh, a constant refrain in these verses under the commands that Paul gives. And in fact, thanksgiving is a common theme uh, in the book of Colossians. If you look earlier in the text here, and you may just want to keep your Bible opener on as we'll be looking carefully at this text this morning. Chapter 1, verse 3, Paul says, We always thank God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ when we pray for you. Verse 12, giving thanks in prayer. Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Chapter 2, Uh, Verse 7, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. And then in our text, in verse 15, 16, and 17, thanksgiving. And then chapter 4, verse 2, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. And so we see that even in such a short letter, uh, the exhortation or theme of thanksgiving is is quite uh, common. And so today, very simply, I want us to see how thanksgiving is working in these uh, three verses. And so there are three headings for which I want to do that, and they correspond with each of the verses. So look at verse 15. And the first point there in your outline, thankfulness is the proper response to the peace the gospel brings. Thankfulness is the proper response to the peace the gospel brings. As I noted before, uh, the command to, uh, to thank God and to be grateful is not the main command here. As we'll see, the main command in verse, 14, verse 15 is that the peace of Christ rule in our hearts. And that's how each of these verses is structured. Paul gives a main command, and then he gives subordinate information or commands related to that, and often it relates to thanksgiving. And so we have to break this verse down in its parts to understand how it's working as a whole. And so let's look at this main command here in verse 15, to let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. First, we have to ask, what is the peace of Christ that Paul is talking about that must rule in our hearts? Thankfully, Paul discusses the peace of Christ earlier in Colossians chapter 1, verse 20, if you want to turn there. Verse 19, For in him, Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing good deeds. He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. So what is the peace that Jesus brings? What is the peace of Christ? The peace of Christ is is Jesus reconciling God with man and with man with man. Paul reminds the, the Colossians here of their former way, of their former hostility against God in verse 21. You were once alienated. He reminds these believers that Before Christ, you were cut off from life with God. You were alienated from Him. In your sins, you were under His judgment and condemnation. You were hostile in mind. You you didn't like God. You hated His ways. You hated His commands. You were at enmity with him, and that showed in your doing of evil deeds. You acted in ways contrary to God's law and word. And Jesus comes and brings peace between you and God. But the hostility isn't just between God and man, because we're told that Jesus reconciles all things, whether on earth or in heaven that the whole creation order is out of whack. That you sort of have to be a a hermit with your head in the ground to think that there's not a problem between uh, human versus human relationships. That this hostility, uh, this enmity towards one another is as old as as, uh, Adam and Eve's children. Cain hated his brother Abel, and murdered him. And the history of mankind has been a history of, of hostility, of nations, of tribes, of wars uh, that, that other nations hate one another, we we see uh, racism. In our day we're seeing Anti-Semitism, a hatred of a people just because of their ethnicity. In our nation and in many other nations, political parties hate one another. Locally, you just turn on the news and every day there's a new stream of this person murdered that person. This person, mugs old lady, grandma, sister, kills children. So there, there's this hostility between God and man in our rebellion against him. And then there's this hostility between man and man. And we're told uh, that Jesus comes and brings peace. So this peace of Christ is not fundamentally this inner tranquility, But this peace is a a forging of relationships that was once hostile. And how does Jesus bring this peace? We're told he brings it, Colossians 1.20, by the blood of his cross. That Jesus comes and the hostility that you and I deserve for our sin, he bore in his own body on the cross. And the wrath that was of God that was hostile against us is satisfied in the death of Christ. We say Christ's death was propitious, meaning it satisfied the wrath of God against sinners. And we can think of many examples in, <clears throat> in the Old Testament of of Israel's sin inciting God's anger and that anger having to be satisfied. I thought of 2 Samuel 24 where David uh, gives a census, takes a census. God told him not to do this. And that leads to great pestilence where the angel of the Lord is destroying uh, people uh, after people. Seventy thousand, we're told, are are dead from Dan to Beersheba. And and David comes and and he pleads for God's mercy and eventually leads to to erecting an altar there. We're told the last words of the book of Samuel. So the, the Lord responded to the plea for the land and the plague was averted from Israel. His sin incited God's wrath, and there needed to be some mediator, some offering to appease the wrath. And in all of our conflict in our world, the world is crying for justice. The blood of the innocent cries out. And yet, if God gave us justice, we would be condemned. We would be judged. And so Jesus comes and he takes the hostility that you and I deserve. He makes peace by the blood of his cross. You were an enemy of God and now you're a friend and a child of God if you're in Jesus Christ. That that relation of hostility between you and God is now one of peace. And that peace that Christ brings isn't just individual between you and God. Uh, it's now cosmic. He reconciles us with other people. And in, and in, the, in the future, uh, with the whole creation... So in the church of Jesus Christ, God is not merely reconciling souls to Himself, but He's reconciling sinners to one another. Galatians 3.28, the Apostle Paul notes, in in Christ there is neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there's neither male or female, you are all one in Christ Jesus. What outside of the church caused division... Jew didn't associate with Gentile. Slave and free were clearly distinguished class of individuals. Male and female, now in in Christ, you're one. You're equally reconciled to God. There's no hostility. There's no boundary uh, between these people. And Paul reminds us of this, even in Colossians 3. He says, let the peace of Christ rule in your heart to indeed what you were called in one body. Christ takes various people from various backgrounds equally at enmity with God, reconciles them with God, and brings them together and reconciles them with one another in the church. That's the work of the gospel." And so you have the peace of Christ if you're in Christ. If you don't have Christ, you don't have the peace of Christ, you are still in, under God's wrath and need to repent and believe to experience this peace of Christ. So Paul says this reconciling peace of Christ should rule in our hearts. To rule here means to, to act like a judge. To be in control of someone's activity by making a, a decision. To be the decisive factor. So the decisive factor of guiding, controlling, of making our decisions in the household of, of God is the peace of Christ. In the household of God, it's not an every man does what's right in his own eyes situation. Rather, as we relate to one another, we are to let the peace of Christ rule in our hearts. We're we're to, in love, keep perfect harmony that we're to remember Christ brought us to God and he brought us to each other. He's brought peace and I must let that be my guiding principle as I interact with my brothers and sisters in the church, that we must maintain that harmony. The peace of Christ should rule, and Paul notes, in our hearts. This peace goes, goes deeper than, than a, just a, a political ceasefire. It's a genuine peace. It's a genuine concern for your brethren in maintaining the unity of the body. So that's the main command. And Paul follows immediately that by saying, very simply, and be thankful. And so the question for us is, what does that command, be thankful, how does it relate to the previous command? Because Paul in verse 16 is going to go to another uh, main exhortation, and so we we see the structure of this passage that being thankful is related to letting the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. And so what's the connection? Well, the proper response to the peace that Christ brings in the gospel is thankfulness. A characteristic of the ungodly is their ingratitude. In Second in Timothy 3.2, Paul, in, in talking about the last days, he's talking about people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy. That a, that a characteristic of the, of the ungodly is their In gratitude towards God. Similarly, in 2 Corinthians 4.15, Paul says, As he's speaking this gospel, even amidst persecution, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with him and bring you into his presence, for it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, as the gospel is advancing, it may increase thanksgiving. To the glory of God. So with the advancement of the gospel is the advancement of thanksgiving. So a characteristic of the ungodly is their un- ingratitude. The characteristic of the believer is their, their gratefulness, their thanksgiving. Because when we understand the gospel, it should only produce gratitude in our hearts. We should have nothing but gratitude. Rise up to God every time we think of the hostility that we had with God. And the fact that Jesus came and brought peace by the blood of His cross. Here you were in your sin. Loving it. At enmity against God. And here's Jesus. He brings peace to you. Jesus announces on the cross... It's finished. The the wrath of God is appeased. You no longer have to face eternal death because of the work of Christ. And so that should produce in you great praise and thanksgiving to God. So I think that's quite obvious for us. But why, why... give an exhortation to thankfulness in a, in a passage that's talking about maintaining the peace of unity. Well, as you see, as we let the peace of Christ rule in our hearts, as we seek to maintain harmony and peace with our, with our brethren, that may mean some self-denial on your part. You, you may not get everything you want and, you, and it may bring a cause of complaining and grumbling in your heart but maybe, a, maybe you have to cover an offense of a, of a brother or a sister some word, some action and you, you, you're, gonna, you're going to uh, let it go you're, you're going to take a blow you're going to give someone else the opportunity that you want it you're going to deny yourself. And so, as you do that, you may want to complain. You, you may want to be grumble, And so Paul quickly reminds us, and be thankful while you're doing this. In the midst of maintaining unity, even as a sacrifice to yourself, Paul says, be thankful Remember where you were before Christ, and remember that God has done for you all that He has done for you, and be thankful. Remember the words of the psalmist, Psalm 84.10, I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. We have all been greatly blessed in Christ, and we should all be immeasurably thankful for God's grace in our lives. So as you think on these Gospels' truths, does it not cause thanksgiving to well up in your hearts as you think of the Gospel? Do you think the peace that Christ brings? It should cause us to be thankful. So here Paul is talking about thankfulness in the context of our relationship with God and thankfulness in the context of our relationship with each other in the church and in our next point, he goes on to how thankfulness is to function in our worship. Look at verse 16 in your second point there. A thankfulness is the proper attitude in our worship of God. Thank- thankfulness is the proper attitude in our worship of God. With the same structure here, we have a main command with subordinate exhortations. And what's our main command in verse 16? Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. And once again, we have to ask the question, what is the word of Christ? And I take this to mean this is the word about Christ. This is, this is the, the message of the gospel, of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, and significance to our lives. Look back at chapter 1, verse 5. Paul says, Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel. And so there's a connection, I think, here between the word of truth and the word of Christ. It is the gospel message. Yet there is also a connection between the Word of, of Christ here named and the written Word of God. The, the Word of Christ is particularly the gospel message, but the gospel message is part of a larger revelation of God and His Word. And so the, the whole Bible is about Christ. The whole Bible points to the, to the message of Christ. So, so we can see in a way that this exhortation for the word of Christ uh, to dwell in us is an exhortation to let the word of God in all its fullness uh, to dwell in our hearts. So it's to dwell in our hearts. It's to live there. It's to inhabit this word of Christ. And it's to dwell there, in verse 16, richly. What a great uh, description for how the Word of God should should function in our hearts, richly. The message of the Gospel should not be a stagnant message in our hearts. It is to live there richly, abundantly, fully. It, It should be bubbling up and overflowing out of our hearts, not stagnant, dead, and unnoticed. We should be Bible-rich, gospel-overflowing people. You should speak to us, and the gospel, the word of God, just pours out of us. And not in a, a trite memorized broken track record type of thing, but as a living, abiding, abundant Word that keeps coming out and speaking to all aspects of our life and is that moving uh, and is that life in us. Deeply entrenched and life-consuming message that works in our hearts. Let the Word of God, let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. You might say, Amen. But that's not me today. That hasn't been my experience in the, in the last week, or the last month, or this last season of my life. It seems not as fresh to me. I, it, it doesn't come out as richly as you are speaking. It should. Well, there's good news because if, if that's not you, Paul gives us means by which we can have the Word of God and enhance its richness to us. And that's uh, what follows here. Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. And So we have three more uh, verbals here that Paul uses to help us, to aid us, as a means of grace, to let the Word of Christ dwell richly in us. Teaching, admonishing, and singing. So first, teaching and admonishing uh, each other. Paul notes this should be done in all wisdom. We should teach, we should instruct one another in, in wisdom, not flippantly, but in accordance with the Word of God. And how are we to, to, to teach and instruct one another? With psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Now commentators are divided on where to put psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Does it fundamentally go under singing, which might make the most sense uh, to us? Or is it to follow after teaching and admonishing? And our ESV likely takes that first. But I I think it's better to take psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with teaching and admonishing. So that we're to teach and admonish each other with or by means of psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. I think, one, it fits the structure of the passage better. And secondly, if you want to turn to Ephesians 5.19... There's a parallel passage. We know these letters are related to one another. And so in a similar content, Paul says in in 519 of Ephesians, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord. With your heart. And so here it's very clear that we're to address one another, we're to speak one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. So I think the same exhortation is is given to us here that we're to uh, address one another, we're to teach and admonish one another by means of singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Once again it's it's not quite clear what are the distinctions of psalms, of hymns, and spiritual songs, but there is a, a testimony, a variety of, of, of music here. Not just the Old Testament Psalms, but other songs used to praise God. So that's the exhortation. We're to teach and admonish one another with our singing. Do you think about that when you're singing? That you're instructing your brothers and sisters? Which which leads to an important point. Much could be said about uh, church music and singing here. But one thing. In order for you to teach and admonish your fellow believer with your singing, you must open your mouth. And sing audibly enough that the person near you can hear you singing. That you have a God-given responsibility to open your voice and and let it be heard. Maybe not across the, the auditorium, but at least to your neighbors around you so that they hear you. So that they hear the words of the song. So that then they are taught and admonished by the words of the song. So the quality of your voice is not the fundamental factor, but the clarity of your voice in speaking the truth. A central purpose here in church music is instruction. It's the words of the song that come from the voices of the people that instructs and edifies us in corporate singing. Our brother last week, Frank Dewana, made this point. Uh, he said, you know, sometimes he has come to worship and he just can't sing. He, he doesn't feel like singing. But when he hears the brethren around him singing praise to God, that is a means of grace to strengthen his soul. So you have a, a means uh, uh, given to you by God to admonish and teach your brothers, and that's simply by singing your participation in singing is, in worship is an important means of grace to your brothers and sisters so that the word of Christ may dwell richly in us. So teaching and admonishing one another. Secondly here, singing. And obviously, we're singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. But I think what Paul is doing here is he discussed the external factors of, of of our singing, that why do we do it? We're doing it to instruct one another, and now he's, he's addressing internal factors of our singing. We're to sing with thankfulness in our hearts to God. Now maybe your translation says, with grace. Uh, and I think thanksgiving is better here. <clears throat> this word can be translated thanks uh, and is translated thanks elsewhere, uh, in the New Testament. I'll just give you a few if you're interested in this. Romans 6.17, 7.25, 1 Corinthians 10.30, and 15.57. And so I think it's proper to see this as thanksgiving, thankfulness. We're to sing with gratitude in your hearts. So as we externally instruct our brothers and sisters in Christ, internally, our hearts, we should be singing with thankfulness, with gratitude. And, and notice the reputi- repetition here uh, from verse 15 of "In your hearts." The peace of Christ is to rule in your hearts. Now, we're to sing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Paul is not satisfied with merely external participation. He wants all of us involved in worship. He wants full heart participation. And he says that the proper attitude that we should have while we are singing corporately is thanksgiving, is gratitude. Gratitude. As one commentator noted, that these words for thanksgiving in Paul regularly denote gratitude that finds outward expression in thanksgiving. That as we know in the gospel, we have much to be thankful for, and that should just want to come out of us. An external, verbal proclamation of that thankfulness. Singing is the proper response of a thankful heart. So as the word of Christ is spoken to us and spoken by us in our singing, we should overflow once again in our hearts with gratitude to God for all that he has done in the gospel. We shouldn't sing sourly, we shouldn't sing begrudgingly, but we should sing exuberantly with great joy and thanksgiving to God for all that he has done for us in Christ. So, so what is your attitude when you sing? Do you sing? And do you sing with a heart that's full of thankfulness to God for all he's done to you in Christ? And Paul says that's how it should be. So we've seen Thanksgiving's relation to our relationship with God, with our relationship to each other, and we've just seen it now in Corporate worship. And finally, verse 17, we'll see it in all of our lives. So, our last point there thankfulness should be a constant theme in our Christian lives. Once again, we see the tightly knit structure of this passage. Verse 15 discusses the peace of Christ. 16, discussed the word of Christ, and now we're on to the name of Christ in this passage. And our main command here is, whatever we do, do, do in the name of the Lord Jesus. Paul begins this exhortation with qualifying, whatever you do. We've discussed your relationship with one another in the church. We've discussed your, re- your, con- your conduct in the corporate worship of God, particularly in the corporate singing of God. But your new life in Christ extends beyond Sunday. It, it extends beyond corporate worship. It extends to all of your life. And so he says, whatever you do, Do all in the name of the Lord Jesus. We are to seek to glorify God in all of our lives with every action. We are seek, we are to seek to please Him and acknowledge that we represent Him in the world. He, he repeats this again in verse 13 in his exhortation to, to the slaves. Maybe you have a hard master. Don't, don't just externally conform, but whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. So even in these menial tasks that you are given to do as a slave that you think your master is, is asking too much, do that for God's glory and do it heartily for Him. In 1 Corinthians 10.31, we have a similar exhortation. Paul, in the the context of eating and drinking and, and whether we're giving offense, he says, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Something as simple, something as routine as eating and drinking is to be done for God's glory. Nothing is secular in the Pauline mind. Everything is sacred. That means everything we do is an opportunity and responsibility to serve and glorify God. We have the responsibility to do everything to God's glory. Paul says, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. Whether you're worshiping at church, or mowing your grass, or making dinner, Closing a business deal, changing a diaper, having a cup of coffee with a friend, enduring a difficult boss, buying a car, buying a house, doing the dishes, whatever you do, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus. All our lives belong to Christ and should be done in service to Him. And now, with what heart disposition? Once again, Paul is not going to be satisfied with mere external compliance. Do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father. It could be easy to pursue this command that we're to to do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. And you could be... Overburdened. Everything has to be done for God's glory? So you you become overburdened and you're you're, you're scrupulously and and joylessly duty-bound. Okay, I'm doing this for God's glory. But Paul says our attitude should be one of thanksgiving, should, should be one of praise and gratitude in all that we do to God. Not begrudgingly. And why? Everything that we do has been given to us by God and is part of His good plan for us. And as we've said throughout this message, in light of all the mercies of God, we should have thankful hearts before Him. So we see there's this constant theme that should be in the Christian's life of thanksgiving. It's in our praise. It's in our conduct with one another. And it's in everything that we do, we give thanks to God. Even outside the context of corporate worship. We shouldn't come on Sunday and and spew from our lips all our thanksgiving and praise to God and then Monday through Saturday we grumble and complain and are in constant discontentment. The same gospel that abounds, that causes you to abound in thanksgiving and worship should cause you to abound in thanksgiving in all of your activities. And notice the gospel-rootedness that Paul brings in here. He says, we give thanks to God the Father through Him. Reminding us of the gospel in those simple words, through Him, meaning we don't have a relationship with God the Father except without Christ, except without His life, death, and resurrection on on our behalf, except having that peace that He has. And, And now we have received mercy, and now we have life with God forever. And so, all that I do should be in thanksgiving to God. So, do you abound in thanksgiving in all your activities in life? Do you say thanks to the Lord when you're caring for that little one for the umpteenth time in the middle of the night? or correcting that toddler for the same petty, sinful behavior, or admonishing that teenager for their foolish and decisions or disrespect? Do you say in those moments, thank you, Lord. Thank you for blessing me with this child or these children. Thank you for entrusting me with their stewardship and care that I'm able Uh, to to be a godly influence and speak your word to them. Other parents, uh, unbelieving parents, wouldn't address these and bring the gospel home to them. Thank you, Lord, for, for my parents who were patient and cared for me when I acted very similarly And more important, thank you, Heavenly Father, for your patience and care for me when I am often so foolish and disobedient and acting in a very similar way to my child is to me. Many of us experience much hospitality with one another. That's a joy. And when you're the host and you're serving, it's very easy to become the Martha-like mentality. And you're all, you know, is the pork overdone? Is, is everyone feeling okay? How do, they, how do they think about me? Do you take time to pause and just rejoice and thank God uh, for the moment? Thank God for the fellowship with the other saints. Thank God for the work and the lives that you're able to hear as you discuss over a meal. In the midst of, of, of a job that maybe on a certain day you're very frustrated and you're overwhelmed, do you, do you stop and say, thank you, Lord? Although I would like circumstances to be a little bit different right now, I'm very thankful for this job. Other people struggle to find employment. Other people struggle to find employment that is sufficient to, their, to cover their needs. But, but you have, through this job, amply supplied our needs, and I'm even able to give greater works of service. Thank you, Lord. Do You thank the Lord for your church. There's no perfect church. There's no perfect situation, but, but you can be thankful that you can come and hear the Word of God. You can sing praised. You can fellowship with other believers. We can be very thankful for, a, for a, a meal that we will share together. It's very easy to get in the hustle and bustle, but pause and thank God. Apart from the gospel, most of us wouldn't know each other. And what a testimony here. So whatever you do, do it for the glory of God, giving thanks to God through Christ. Thank you, God, should be a constant theme, a constant refrain in our Christian lives. That Christians, of all people, should be the most thankful and give praise to God. This is an evangelistic opportunity that as your co-workers or your families are, are constantly grumbling and complaining, you can be uh, the voice of gratitude. So let me tell you how good God is to me. And maybe this morning you're here to say, well, I'm not quite there. I'm the, mum- I'm the Monday mumbler. Well, Repent. And ask God, by by the gospel, uh, to change and, and, and fill you as you come to understand the gospel with great gratitude. As we'll see later this afternoon, we have much to thank our God for. And so may thanksgiving abound more and more in our hearts and on our lips to our God. Amen. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for so much that you've done to us. So much in Christ that we have of your grace. We confess that we often grumble and complain and fail to be thankful where we ought. Forgive us, Lord. Cleanse us anew and help us to overflow with thanksgiving in the life of the church, in our worship, and in every activity, gratitude,